turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. I want to tell you a short story before we begin. In February 2017, we began this journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And, and as we stand here this morning, we will finish it. So with that, we're going to have Kylie read. And after she reads, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you're going to say, thanks be to God. But not yet. Wait for it. Kylie. All right. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you, Kylie. When I was 20 years old, I went for a summer missions trip to Papua New Guinea. And I was there for six weeks or so. And while I was there, I saw um, people committed their lives to public health, literacy, and to making disciples and planting churches. And what was so amazing about this was, yes, the sacrifice of people that had shown, chosen to leave the comforts of nine to five North America and to go live in a tribal third world setting. That was amazing, the stories of people's lives. But what was the most amazing thing for me was that the indigenous believers, new followers of Jesus, were leading their churches. And those churches were multiplying and going to differing neighboring tribes. Some of these tribes that had for generations fought and killed one another and now, because of the miracle of the word of God, the Holy Spirit in their hearts, one tribe was motivated to go share the good news of Jesus with another. And as I stood there as a 20-year-old watching all this and, and asking questions and interacting and, and being present around this, I began to be overcome with this, this sense of incredible invitation to purpose. This purpose, I, I thought about my life, growing up in California, had been around money and freedom to do any kind of sport and activity and all kinds of pleasures. But as I stood there and was hearing and seeing this before me, this, this gospel multiplication unveiled right in front of me, I began to sense this invitation into something of such great purpose like I had never imagined in my life. So there at 20 years old, I committed myself. I just said, Lord, if my life could have some kind of impact in something like this, in telling people who would never otherwise hear about Jesus, if I could give my life to something like this, please, please, would you do that in me? I say yes to that, whatever that looks like. And I had no idea. There was all kinds of different motives in my heart mixed in there. But let me just tell you, this passage that we're looking at today was like dynamite blowing up my world. And not only mine, but if you look through 2,000 plus years of church history, this particular passage, these last words of Jesus to his disciples, this great commission, the sending out of people 
to the nations. This has changed and altered countless lives of men and women throughout history, beginning in the Middle East where this started and then expanding to North Africa, up into Europe. And actually, if you think about it, because of someone's obedience to these words of Jesus, you and I are gathered here today in North America with the knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? All out of this passage. And for me, this has been motivating and life-altering. Because I said yes to that, I didn't even know what I was saying yes to at 20 years old in the jungle of Papua New Guinea, but because I said yes, I came up here to go to Bible college. I met my wife, and we eventually went to an unreached people group in northern Spain for a period of time and then came back here today. And something in me now in my 40s is being rekindled. There's a sense of purpose again around this passage, and I think it's not just for me, but it's for us. And specifically, if you're 25 or under and you're Gen Z, I'd ask you to listen up, <laughs> because I think there is something that God wants to say to you out of this. So before we go there, we have to go back to the setting of these words. So imagine for yourself what it was like for these 11, these early followers of Jesus, to hear these words. What would they have been thinking when they heard Jesus say this? What was the state of their hearts and their emotions? Remember, we know the resurrection of Jesus and the implications, but this is fresh for them. The women were at the tomb. They came back. They told the men. The men are processing it. That's why this passage opens up shockingly by saying some worshiped and some doubted. It wasn't completely clear to them the magnitude of who their rabbi was and what he had done. It's clear to us, sure, looking back, but in this moment, they were still trying to figure it out. Some doubted. Their rabbi had been publicly executed as an enemy of the state. They were hiding in fear. Now he's alive. They're starting to get the fuller picture. And I think what we're going to see today is this aha moment for them. But first, we have to put ourselves in their mindset. How would they view these words that they're about to hear from Jesus? Well, we know that Matthew, as this gospel author, is Jewish. He's steeped in the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets. These are the early disciples of Jesus. Their mental maps are what we call the Old Testament. So we have to go back there to understand how they would hear this. So would you turn with me back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. The creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2, a couple of themes we want to pick up on. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now listen to these words. God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And then skip down to chapter 2, verse 2. Or verse 1 says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. It's done. And then verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2. You guys there? By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Notice these words. Then God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, 
because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. A couple things. Look up for a second. A couple things you need to understand that would certainly be in these early followers of Jesus' mind at this point. Number one, God's desire from the beginning is to bless humanity. Let that sink in for a minute. In the beginning, the original plan of God is to bless humankind. Number two, that blessing is not for a specific small group of people. It is to expand and fill the entire earth. Notice the scope of this. He says, increase in number, be blessed, increase in number and fill the earth. God's blessing was not for a small group of people, but for all peoples. And number three, the conduit of blessing is humans. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Adam and Eve. And he's saying, through you is coming a blessing that will encompass all of humanity and even all the earth. But if you know the story, it starts to go downhill from here. The first family on earth has massive dysfunction. Not only that, they have big time trust issues. They won't trust God. God wants to bless them, but this early family wants to do blessing and wants to do the good life and the good way on their own. The first children, as you know, Cain and Abel, there's a murder between them and things just spiral downhill from there. The first 11 chapters of the story of God are this downward spiral of mankind trying to do it on their own. But God, like a good father, is determined to bless his kids. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, where we see the do-over plan. Adam and Eve got way off track, so God says, okay, 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 let's start over again. Genesis chapter 12, he starts over. And the Lord God said to Abram, God chooses another Adam, a dude called Abram. He's like, first guy, first family, didn't work. Let's start over again. You, Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's house to the land that I will show you. Interesting. The first thing he says to Abram is go. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing, Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then get this, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What God wanted to do with Adam fell off track, so God's like, okay, that's all right. Let's start over. Abram, I pick you. You're going to be my conduit, your family. And notice the repetition of blessing. It's almost humorous over and over. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing. Whoever blesses you, I bless, and all the nations of earth will be blessed. And what's interesting is God picks Adam, excuse me, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who's barren. You didn't get this, but in the intro, in chapter 11, right before God calls Abraham, he introduces Abraham and Abraham's wife, and the descriptor we're given of Abraham's wife is that she can't have kids. So the irony, the dramatic tension is thick. God picks this man and his wife who can't have kids and now says, you're going to have so many children, they're going to fill the earth. That's weird. That's a weird start, God. 
And I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You know, I prayed with a couple just last week who haven't been able to have kids and really want to. And there's something so visceral about that. That a man and woman created to be together and to multiply and have children, that, that, that normal, healthy desire rooted right here in Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And there's just pain when that's not there. But, but God shows up in the middle of that and says, I know the pain, Abraham and Sarah, And if you'll trust me, I'm going to do for you beyond what you could even imagine. And notice the emphasis of this covenant. This is a covenant, a promise between two parties, between God and Abraham. But the emphasis is on God. Look back at the passage really quickly. How many times he says, I will. I will make you a nation. I will make your name great. I will bless those. And I will make sure that all will be blessed through you. The over, like, it's an overemphasis on God's part. God will do this. Now, blessing is repeated over and over and over and over again. But what in the context of Genesis and the story of God does he mean by blessing? Is this the preachers with sneakers, hashtag blessed, of pop culture and celebrityism? Please, dear God, no. This is not. This is not prosperity gospel. But there is this aspect that's undeniable from the first chapters of Genesis that the blessing of God means fruitfulness, abundance, and fullness of life. Now, we know through the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament that you can have abundance materially, you can have everything materially and not have God's blessing, And then on the opposite, we see in Jesus and Paul in their lifestyle and in their teaching that you can have nothing materially and still be blessed by God. But there's something here that the author of Genesis is tapping into, and Jesus is going to pick up on later, that in the kingdom of God, healthy things grow and reproduce. Now, to Abraham in an agrarian society, he needs more kids and he needs more crops to survive, right? We don't, we just need new seasons, or Winko, or Trader Joe's, or whatever. But for him, this is survival, and this is about life. But Jesus picks up on this and talks about people, talks about you and I being like good soil. Isn't that interesting? And he says good soil is blessed, it flourishes, and it reproduces. So there's something here, there's a little bit of a kingdom mystery that to be blessed by God in your life and in mine has to do with healthy, reproductive, flourishing life. Does that make sense? Thank you. But there's more. On the seventh day, God also blessed humanity with a day of rest. There's a vertical, there's like a horizontal aspect of blessing that we can see in the natural here on earth. But then there's also another, a vertical dimension to blessing. And God says it has to do with Sabbath rest. It has to do with this enjoyment of relationship, being at peace and friendship with the creator God. That's why in Genesis chapter 2, God stops on the Sabbath 
He rests and he blesses it. He blesses the relational, the vertical relational connection that we can have with God. This is Abraham talking with God like a friend. This is Adam and Eve walking in the cool of the day with their God. That's an aspect of blessing. And then also, couple more, one more thing on blessing. People are the conduit of God's blessing. God's blessing is to be passed on. Originally, it was to be passed on through Adam and Eve. Now it's to be passed on through Abraham to all the nations of the earth. Now let's pause for a minute. You and I, like Abraham, are blessed to pass on the blessing. Whatever it is that you have, experience, skill, whatever you own, Whatever you know, you have been given things. Everyone in this room has been given a steward. You've been given over a deposit in all kinds of different ways. Even just your own time here on earth. And that is to be given for others. God's people are to be like a river. We receive from God up here, and then down the line, we give it away. We're not to be stagnant like a pond with the blessings, the experience, the knowledge, the time, the resources that we have. We're like Abraham, blessed to be a blessing. And this is exactly the essence of the mission of God, that all the nations of the earth would actually be blessed through you, you have been given something that, that others need. And if you hold on to it, it stagnates, it dies, and you'll be accountable for that. So instead, the invitation of God is to give it away and to lean into that. Turn over one more time in Genesis 17. We're having a little Bible time in here. Turn, turn to your neighbor and say, Bible time. That's right, it's Bible time. Genesis 17. God confirms and elaborates this blessing, and this is great. There's more details. What is this blessing that God has for humanity? Thank you for asking. Here, he drills down on it a little bit deeper. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, I know, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. Then I will make my covenant between you and will greatly increase your numbers. There it is again, verse three. Here is the proper response to God appearing to you. Verse three, Abraham fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this covenant with you, you will be a father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. By the way, heads up real quick. That's new. Remember, it was like you'll increase, you'll bless the nations. Now he's talking about kings coming out of Abraham. Verse 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. Between your descendants and the generations to come. And... I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. So notice the language again. It's familial. You are going to be the father of many nations. 
He's talking about now this more specifics. There's going to be kings that come out of you. Part of God's blessing of the nations through Abraham is not just a lot of descendants, which is awesome, but specifically kings coming out of Abraham. It's an everlasting covenant, including some everlasting land. I love Selhammer's commentary on this out of Pentateuch's narrative. He says, God's part of the covenant consists of two promises, abundant descendants and eternal faithfulness. As the narratives have already stressed, the descendants of Abraham who belong to this covenant will own their, owe their existence to God alone. I will make you a father of many nations. Now get this. He says, they will be children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The promise of abundant descendants is memorialized in the change of Abraham's name, Abram's name to Abraham, which is to be interpreted to mean father of many nations. Now notice what Selheimer's connecting here. The blessing of abundant children will happen in part biologically. We know as the story goes on, Abraham and Sarah have kids. But also there's another level here. Abraham and Sarah are not going to fill the whole earth literally with their biological children. I mean, there's some miracles at play here, but not that one, okay? There's something else. He's going to have descendants in another way. Children of faith, born of God, John picks up on in 1 John. So this blessing of many children is going to have wider impact than Abraham and Sarah ever even imagined. And God is determined to do this. But if you know anything about the story of Israel, as the story goes on, Abraham has a little bit of a misfire, has a kid, Ishmael, then he gets back on track, has Isaac, Jacob. Jacob turns into the nation called Israel. The family grows. God even verifies his commitment to this entire nation. The covenant he first made with Abraham, now he makes to a wider, an entire nation of Abraham's descendants. He makes a covenant with them. But in the moment of the covenant, Exodus 19, the people can't even stay focused on their God and go make an idol of a calf and worship. It's actually comical how difficult it is for us to be faithful to God. And that's the tension here. How in the world is God the father of all going to bless his kids when his kids can't help but mess up and run from his blessing? How will this resolve? Not only that, but Israel can't stay faithful to their God, and they certainly can't stay faithful to their mission. Their mission from Abraham is to go to all the nations with the blessing of God, with the knowledge of God. They know the creator of the universe, and they're to take that to every tribe, tongue, and nation, but they can't. It's like, it's like an ambulance on the way to a car accident. This is the vehicle to go to help the people that are in distress. But the ambulance gets in an accident of its own. That's Israel. The Savior needs to be saved. It's an actual problem. Turn with me to Isaiah. The prophets come. Someone say Bible time. Bible time. Thank you. I want to make sure that you guys still wanted Bible time. Some... Okay, good. Turn with me to Isaiah. The prophets pick up on this. And basically, the prophets have two messages to Abraham's descendants, to Israel. 
Number one, you guys have blown it. You're off track. Repent. And then message number two, but God's going to do it. So Isaiah, in the first two chapters, is kind of the microcosm of the whole book of Isaiah, according to Dr. Tim Mackey. And so these first two chapters contain the themes that we want to hit. These two themes. This is it right here. Theme number one. In my NIV, the title says, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, it says, a rebellious nation. That's theme one. (laughs) Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. He's going to use metaphor here. I reared up children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know my people. They do not understand. Woe to a sinful generation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They've spurned the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned their backs on him. That is the prophetic commentary of how Abraham's children are in relationship to their God. It's bad. But the good news is, turn over one page, Isaiah 1.18, but God says, come now, let us settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing, Israel, and obedient children of Abraham, you will eat the good things of the land. What is he saying? You will be blessed if you repent and come back to me. And by the way, Over and over and over, what you see in the story of God, Genesis to Revelation, is this father that is heartsick over his children and will go through any lengths to find them. And there is no number of mistakes that he won't overlook if you will return. And my sense is for some today, you just need to hear that. You're like, Abraham, I don't even know. This is for you. There is absolutely nothing that your father won't do to run after you, to forgive you, to accept you where you are and bring you home. Is that right? That is right. Just Jesus, whoever that's for, may it sink in deep like a seed planted in good soil. May it bear much fruit, the fruit of repentance. God, it's been a hard year. Some of us have taken beatings and some have been trapped in behavior and addiction and they feel totally unusable. But God, if you could use Israel, if you could use me, you could use them. So come Spirit of God, press it deep in their hearts now. Amen. So the the prophets are very honest about the need for Israel to repent, but they're also beautifully honest about the future hope. Just in Isaiah chapter 2, we're still there. Isaiah chapter 2, look at this in verse 2. Isaiah begins and he says, In the last days, in Hebrew, that's biakarit hayamim, and that is a hyperlink. When you see that in the last days, it connects to all these other prophetic, eschatological, future hope promises of God. So when Isaiah puts that there, he knows what he's doing. And remember, the earlier followers of Jesus, they were steeped in this stuff. They knew these prophecies. They knew these catchphrases. They understood the intricate networking of the scriptures. In the last days, Isaiah says, the Lord says, 
the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. And catch this, all nations will stream into it. All nations will stream into where? Into the Lord's temple. Now pause for a second. Who did the Israelites allow into the Lord's temple? Israelites. And even then, a very small group of them. Remember Jesus in the temple turning over the money changers? He was angry and he quoted out of Isaiah. He said, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for who? For the nations. But you, Israel, have lost the plot. Not only have you created all these intricate layers of architecture and um, boundaries to keep the nations out of the temple, now you've even turned it for your own profit. How far from my heart have you come? That's what Jesus is mad about. And Isaiah is saying, no, it will happen. There will be a day when all the nations will stream into the very presence of God, where even an Israelite would dare to go in fear of death. But the nations will stream into there. Verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. Israel certainly not. So he will. So that we may walk in his paths. And then the law will go out from Zion, out from God's place, his original intention. The word of the Lord out from Jerusalem. Verse 4. And he will judge between the nations. And he will settle the disputes for many peoples. The very thing that Israel was supposed to do and failed at, God is saying it will come about. And guess who's going to do it? The Lord himself. Guess who's going to teach the nations? The Lord. Guess who's going to come into the temple? The nations. This is beautiful. This is a glimmer of hope. Nation will not take up sword against nation. We long for that day. Nor will they train anyone for war. Can you imagine? Come, descendants of Jacob. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is this beautiful promise of the Gentiles, the nations, the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to do. But one more stop before we get back to our scene of the disciples with the resurrected Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to Daniel. We're going to go over a couple. This is the fun part. If you weren't having Bible time, if you weren't having fun yet, you're going to now. Daniel chapter 7, another prophet with another future vision of what is the fulfillment of what God has promised to Abraham. It will happen. And this is sprinkled throughout the prophets so that Israel can remember. Yes, we lost the temple. Yes, we're in captivity. Yes, now we're in our land, but Rome is here. But there will be a day, Israel. When God's promise to Abraham will be fulfilled, all the nations will be blessed. It's coming. It will happen. And here in this beautiful, amazing vision, Daniel 7, we get a snapshot of what that day will look like. Are you ready? I don't think you're ready, but that's all right. Okay. Daniel 7, verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Who likes to call himself the Son of Man? Jesus, that's his favorite name for himself. I think he got it from here. He was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. This is a beautiful metaphor for God the Father. And the Son of Man was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. Let that sink in for a minute. This man 
a human, comes into the presence of the living God, the ancient of days, Yahweh. And as he approaches God, which is dangerous, remember Abraham's response to God, face down. This guy, face to face. As he approaches God, he's given authority, glory. This is the God who says, I will share my glory with no one, but his glory is shared with him and his sovereign power. And then if that wasn't enough, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Worshipped who? The Son of Man. This is radical. This makes no sense. This is paradigm-breaking. And what this is, is a beautiful, prophetic picture of the multi-ethnic church. What an incredible reality. People from every tribe, every ethnicity gathered around in the presence of the Trinitarian community of love in worship. It goes on, if that wasn't enough. His dominion, the dominion of the Son of Man is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the first time we see anything like this. All the nations around this son of man worshiping. He receives all this glory and he doesn't turn it away. He receives it. Now, with that in mind, for the last time, turn to Matthew chapter 28. And remember, keep that in your mind. These are the mental maps of the early followers of Jesus. Keep that in there. But then also, in this setting, as they go up on the mountaintop to meet Jesus, here we are, Matthew 28. Remember this? There's 11 disciples. There used to be 12. And they go to meet Jesus, and some worshiped and some doubted. Interesting, right? But I don't think it's quite clear to them who their rabbi really is. There's been hints along the way. There's been dramatic moments. But remember, a couple of days ago, they were hiding for their lives. They did not want to be associated with Jesus. Now they do, in faith, go to meet him. But some are still not sure. But I think it's about to connect right here. In the back of their minds, they know the Hebrew scriptures. And it's about to, the light bulb is about to turn on. Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority in heaven and earth, has been given to me. My friends, in this moment, every good student of the Hebrew scriptures would be thinking Daniel chapter seven. There is no other time, there is no other allusion or reference to this type of magnitude that one that's like the son of man would say, I now have all authority in heaven and on earth. This is the king whose kingdom will last forever. This is the one who came from the descendants and the very line of Abraham. Matthew proves that in his genealogy in chapter one. The first chapter of the gospel of Matthew is Matthew showing that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. And he's a better Adam. He's a better Moses. Where Israel fell, failed in the wilderness and failed the test and temptation, Jesus passed the test. Where Israel failed to keep the law, Jesus obeyed the Father even unto death. And where all the other prophets and kings died, this prophet and king conquered death, came out the other side. And I believe at this moment, the disciples get it. 
So in light of that, Jesus says, therefore, now go. Make disciples of all the nations. This is a different way of saying Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply. Think about that for a minute. God's original intent was to fill the earth with his children, not just biological. This right now, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, fill the nations, he's saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with children of God by faith. And if you turn with me really quickly, or I'll just read it to you. Galatians chapter 3, Paul picks up on this. He says, understand then, this is Galatians 3, verse 7. This is to prove that I'm not way out on a limb. I'm on a limb, but I'm not way out on the limb. Paul says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. That makes sense, right? If you have faith, you're a child of Abraham. In the same way that Abraham had faith in God, so do you. You That's right? Scripture, Paul says, foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's us, Gentiles. And he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Here's the gospel. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Listen, this has been God's plan all along. That Israel, Gentiles, all nations would become one family under God their father, just like Abraham did, by faith. Just as Habakkuk says, the righteous will live by faith. Abraham is the prototype of faith, not Moses. Moses broke faith. Moses had the law and couldn't keep it. He broke faith. He didn't get to go into the promised land. Abraham, without the law, shows faith par excellence. Does Abraham show perfection? No, but he shows faith just like you and I. So, if the why of this passage is blessing the nations, the what is go and make disciples, and the how is baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I commanded. So a quick word on the how. Baptism. Jesus is laying out in these couple lines the marching orders for the church. God wants to bless the nations, It's going to happen through making disciples, and here's how you do it. You baptize them. Baptism is a visible commitment and identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You go under the water. We hold you there just long enough that you can feel (laughs) the impact of it, and then we bring you up. And in that, you identify with Jesus who was dead and buried and comes back to life. You identify with Jesus through that. You commit to the way of Jesus and in baptism, it's your commitment to the family. And listen, this has been a hard year for many, but we're back. Some people are like, what's the future of the church? Is it gonna be a hybrid? No, it's not. We're only doing online church as long as we absolutely have to. The future of the church is the same as the past. It's gathering together. And I just want to say, Bridgetown family, we are here and we are committed, are you? Baptism is you saying, I am committed to the family, and the family says, we're committed back to you. So some of you, we're going to baptize in two weeks. We'll do a class next week so you know what you're doing. And then the next one, we'll baptize you. Some of you need to get baptized. Notice that it's baptism into the name singular 
of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, plural. God is a Trinitarian community. And in the same way, you are welcomed into a multifaceted community of the family of God. Come identify with Jesus. His death, his resurrection, come join the family. Secondly, first he says, be baptized. That's, the, that's how you do it. And then secondly, you teach these new apprentices of Jesus to obey. Notice that it's not around what you believe. It's actually around what you do and your lifestyle. Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father, not believes the will of my father, but it's a believing that results in doing. It's action-oriented. You can see it. James says, faith without works is dead, but I think Jesus said it first. He says, whoever does the will of my father is my mother, my brother, my sister, my family. Interesting, maybe part of the reason why Jesus was celibate, didn't have biological children, is because he had them in the spirit. Jesus actually has children that fulfill the promise of Abraham and fill the whole earth. Isn't that interesting? So anyways, Jesus just says, hey, if you want to be part of my family, you do the will of my father. Faith in Jesus should be lived out by practicing his way, following the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus. That's why Jesus, at the end of his beautiful teaching, Matthew 5-7, through the Sermon on the Mount, he said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Dang. I used to think it was about Bible study. I wanted to learn the Bible and understand and have the right answers. And Jesus is like, that's the beginning, and then you go out the door and you do the answers. You put them into practice. And friends, this is literally what our church is about. Practicing the way of Jesus. It comes right out of this passage. We want to understand Jesus' mental maps for reality, and then we want to live that out in community to the best of our ability. And then he ends this with this promise. It's so beautiful. This Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus says, as you go out to do this, baptize, teach others to practice my way, I will be with you to the ends of the earth. Now, just a few possible responses for this, and I'm watching the clock if you're worried. Don't worry, I can see it. We've got so much time, it's not even funny. <laughs> Couple of possible responses. Number one, repent. What I mean by that is change your thinking. This has been the most challenging thing for me as I've contemplated this. I need to change my thinking and repent from thinking that God's mission is just for me, my family, my church, my city. God's mission is so much bigger than that. Some of us need our thinking refreshed. We need it updated. We need to remember the story of God. It's about the nations. Certainly you're part of that, but it doesn't stop with you. So much I could say there and so little time. I feel like the time stopped. I'm actually doing better. As a church, 10% of every dollar that we receive through your generous giving, 10% of that goes right back out the door with this heart of justice and mercy, some to local um, initiatives and some global. But I wonder if that's true for the rest of us as well. Certainly as a church, we've drawn a line in the sand, but I just feel challenged in my own heart as I think about my time, my money, my dreams, my future, my family. Do I have that same kind of commitment? I think this is a vision 
that the next generation needs. And some of you as fathers and mothers in this house need to lead by example. We need to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ to the nations. Number two, so first, some of you need to repent like me, change your thinking. Number two, some of us in this room need to go to the nations, actually go. You need to respond by leaving your current cultural context and going to another. This could be short-term, this could be YWAM, this could be a gap year, but you need to go and be part of the blessing of the nations. And honestly, the, one of the biggest benefits of going is that you learn from the nations. You know, in our, there's so many things I want to say, but I'm going to keep going. I'll say it more later. Um, some of you need to go. Third, I think we all need to rediscover missional living. Some need to go to the nations, and some need to just go to your neighbors. I think that in this generation, we need to wake up to our neighbors, wake up to the nations, and then specifically, I think there's a greater call again to the foster care system. And some of you here embody that and have lived for that. We honor that. G.K. Chesterton says this, we have to love our neighbor because she is there. He is the sample of humanity which is actually given to us. Precisely because he may be anybody, he is everybody. In other words, whoever is your neighbor, that's the person you're called to love and serve in Jesus' name. And I think as our friend J.T. Thomas said, we need to awaken to our authority again. I feel like we need to stop complaining about the city and maybe love the city. What if... We're here in Portland on purpose. Yeah. What if what the city needs is actually you? Yeah. What would it look like for us to respond?